Disobedience is the worst of evils. This it is that ruins cities. This makes homes desolate. By this the ranks of allies are broken into headlong rout. Therefore, we must support the cause of order. The words of Creon, leader of Thebes, in Antigone, a play by the Greek poet Sophocles. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is the first episode in the second unit of my series of podcasts about ancient Greek history. The next several episodes will be about classical Greece, a renowned period of Western history in which many of the fundamental ideas in terms of politics, war, philosophy, economics, and religion, all of these ideas are born and reformed among the greatest minds of that time. And what minds they were, for the most part, you may have heard their names already. Solon, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus, Pericles, Thucydides, Demosthenes, and many more. And this was a time of great deeds as well. The Athenians' bold attack at Marathon, Leonidas's last stand at the gates of Thermopylae, Themistocles' brilliant strategy at the Battle of Salamis. But before we begin, my usual plug. Each episode of this podcast typically, typically requires hours of research and anywhere from ten to 15,000 words of writing. So if you would like to support the Western Traditions podcast, please visit the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. There you can find helpful pictures and maps, some good books to read, Western Traditions merchandise, and both Patreon and PayPal buttons for making financial contributions. All that said, let's get started. We'll begin with Thebes. Thebes is located in central Greece, to the north of the perhaps more well-known Athens and Sparta. Today, Thebes is the capital city of Boeotia, a historic region of Greece. I have previously mentioned the belief that Hesiod, and possibly Homer as well, were both from this area. In an earlier episode, I described Greece as a mountainous peninsula with rocky soil. Boeotia is one of the exceptions to that rule. Present-day Boeotia contains two low plains areas separated by a ridge that make for excellent farmland. The northern plain was actually once Lake Copace, and this body of water was drained as early as the 14th century BC by the Mycenaeans, but its management has been off and on throughout the millennia, its sources often diverted for irrigation purposes. Less than 200 years ago, it was finally completely drained and has been a breadbasket as well as a pasture land for cattle ever since. There were also parcels of land along the sea in the northeast, and to the south, Boeotia reaches the shores of the Gulf of Corinth, thus giving the realm more than adequate ocean access. In classical Greece, these were all valuable resources for the region, allowing the locals to make more of a living off their surroundings than many other Greeks. Over all this plenty, the city of Thebes looked down from that dividing ridge. After Sparta and Athens, it is probably the most well-remembered city of ancient Greece. I begin with Thebes 
because we really need to discuss the concept of the city-state before we delve into Athens and Sparta. Let's parse that term for starters, the city-state. American listeners especially may have a preconceived idea of a state that really won't work for most historical study. Americans in particular think of a state as being a subdivision of a nation, but the term state refers actually to an independent nation itself. In this episode, and in many episodes to come, I will be using the term state quite a bit, and when I do, it will be in reference to a sovereign nation, essentially. However, to again clarify, in the milieu of classical Greece, state will typically refer to the city-state. This term refers to the type of state that was common in that area and time, meaning a region ruled over by a single large city, though its territory may have contained other towns and villages. Now, citizens of the comparatively large nations of today might be surprised to learn the actual size and population of some of the famous Greek city-states of the past. Athens and Sparta did not hold millions or even hundreds of thousands of inhabitants. Instead, the citizenry of each never exceeded several tens of thousands. This number was, of course, augmented by slaves, even in the so-called democracy of Athens, and these slaves were numerous. And the territory involved was incredibly modest. The total area of Attica, the peninsula, which formed most of the territory of Athens, is less than 4,000 square kilometers. That may sound like a lot, but it's actually a little smaller than the modern-day state of Rhode Island. And yet this was the region from which the Athenians would launch their imperial expansion in the 5th century BC. So when we talk about these city-states, and most of them were much smaller than that of Athens actually, when we talk about them, we are actually talking about very small regions. Small enough that in those which were democratic, they were actually often direct democracies in which the whole people, all the adult male citizens anyway, would vote together on every major decision. The Greeks called it the polis, not the 911 polis, but P-O-L-I-S, polis, meaning city. But again, a clarification, today you might say city to just mean the legal boundaries of the city, or in reference to the governing body of the city. When the philosophers, particularly Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle, when they refer to the city, they are really referring to the whole people which belong to a certain city, even if, even if they do not live within its geographical bounds. And they are also referring to its laws and its legal presence in its citizens' lives. If I seem to belabor this point about city-states, about the polis, it is because I cannot overstate the importance of this matter for the Greeks. As you will see in all of the coming episodes, the question of obedience to the state and the consequences for disloyalty, all of these are life and death matters, issues of the most importance. Classical Greeks had an almost religious appreciation for the state, at least in the minds of many modern Westerners. We live in a time when, in the never-ending battle between individual rights and state oversight, it is the rights of the individual which have priority for the most part. That pendulum may swing in the other direction sometime in the future, but the Greeks' consideration of the state's needs may seem almost alienating when you take it into account. Often people with very liberal and free-thinking mindsets may speak with appreciation for the philosophy of the Greeks, and in particular minds like those of Socrates and Plato. They would be surprised to read Plato's Republic. This is a lengthy dialogue between Socrates and his friends about the proper arrangement of the state and its citizens. 
The resulting recommendations of this dialogue provide a framework for an absolutely totalitarian state that would make Nazi Germany look like a carefree walk in the park in comparison. Such was the importance that the Greeks placed on authority. Now, this is not to say that the Greek city-states were all overwhelmingly authoritarian. No, the world of politics among, among the ancient Greeks was just as wild and as varied as were their religious outlooks. But among the Greeks, whom we remember most, because they left so much documentation, the argument for a strong state will stand out. And as you will see, this has much to do not only with the dialogues of Plato, but also with the wars that preceded them and the conflicts between opposing ideologies in this region. And these conflicts, when we come to them, will probably sound very familiar to you. And that is what makes the study of classical Greece so rewarding. That the struggles and conflicts which they experienced are the same today in our society as they were then. We still go to war over these political matters about deciding who gets to participate in society, in decision making. We still ask the same questions and find no answers. What is justice? What is courage? What does it mean to be good? Is there a soul? But all this history and philosophy in good time. Right now, let us begin our study of Thebes with a myth. Socrates once said, as he got older, he turned more and more to myth in search of the answers to his questions. The older I get, the more that I think he may have been right. The particular myth that I will use is that of Oedipus. Most listeners are probably familiar with the tale of Oedipus, and they are probably familiar with it for the wrong reasons. Moderns tend to focus on the purient elements of the story, the kind that make people with childish minds giggle. Yes, Oedipus married his mother, which sounds like the first step in becoming your own grandpa. However, humor aside, the story of Oedipus is a grand tragedy, literally a Greek tragedy. That phrasing, calling some particular situation or story a Greek tragedy, is derived from the tendency in many ancient Greek tragedies to follow a similar plot, that of a great man with heroic qualities who is eventually undermined by some slight personal failing, by some oversight, or perhaps by some circumstances beyond his control. This particular myth will also help us to underline and understand the powerful role of the oracle at Delphi in Greek life and of the respect for the power of prophecy in general. The story of Oedipus begins in the most accepted versions. Remember that the myths of ancient Greece all had variations, some more divergent than others, but the most popular received traditions about Oedipus begin with an ancient king of Thebes named Laius. That's L-A-I-U-S. His queen, at the beginning of the tale, had as yet produced no heir for him. Like many Greeks of means in his time, Laius went to the oracle at Delphi to seek guidance in this matter. The oracle tells him that any male heir produced by his wife will grow up and murder him. I refer you back to an earlier episode of this podcast when I remarked that there is a great focus in many Greek myths with regard to this father-son conflict, that the son will overthrow the father. This motif is found all the way back in the story of Uranus, the sky god, who was overthrown and castrated by his son Cronus, who in turn was overthrown by Zeus. And this is not just a theme among the tales of the gods, but as we also see here, a concern for mortal Greeks as well. Anyway, Laius learns from the oracle at Delphi that his own son will kill him, 
So, when his wife gives birth to a son, not long after this discovery, Laius orders a servant to expose the child. Exposure was simply the ancient form of abortion, in which the full-term child was laid out in the wilderness somewhere and abandoned, soon to die of starvation, cold, or predation. A strange detail in the story, strange to me anyway, includes that King Laius had the baby's heels pierced and tied together before giving him away. Presumably, this was to keep him from crawling away, which suggests that the child was not a newborn, since newborns are literally helpless for months after birth. But the servant cannot bring himself to do this and gives the child to a shepherd. Eventually, while still an infant, the boy is brought to Polybus, the king of Corinth, and his wife adopts the boy, naming him Oedipus because of the swelling in his feet caused by the injury to his heels. The name Oedipus comes from the same root word from which we derive the word edema, a medical term for swelling. So, Oedipus is adopted and is raised in a royal household. This scenario, that of a lost child brought up among his ruler's family, should remind us already of numerous similar accounts which we have heard already. The story of Cyrus the Great in Persia, the story of Moses in Egypt, Sargon of Akkad, and so on. All of these cultural heroes born under distress, abandoned, and then saved and raised by adoptive royal parents. It makes me wonder just exactly how old this story is, or how old the theme is anyway. After growing to manhood then, Oedipus learns that he is not the biological son of his parents in the city of Corinth. While his adopted parents deny this, he disbelieves and goes to the very same oracle at Delphi and asks for information about this mystery. The oracle, however, rarely gives straight answers. Oedipus only learns that he is doomed to kill his father and marry his mother. To avoid this destiny, he decides not to ever return to his family's realm in Corinth, thinking thus to spare his mother and his father. On the road, shortly after leaving Delphi, Oedipus encounters a man driving a chariot. There is a fight, a sort of ancient example of road rage, and Oedipus kills the man. The next part of the story may be more familiar to listeners. Continuing down the road to Thebes, Oedipus encounters a sphinx, which has been menacing the approaches to the city. The sphinx asks all passers-by a riddle, and if they cannot solve it, the sphinx kills and eats them. When Oedipus approaches, the sphinx asks him, What walks on four legs in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening? Oedipus replies with with just one word, man, and the sphinx allows him to pass, because man, when he is born, crawls on all fours, grows to walk on two legs, and then in old age uses a cane or third leg to support his stance. About this portion of the Oedipus story, first, I note that Oedipus here demonstrates that he is a well-rounded hero. The same was done with Heracles, who was not just a big brute who used strength to solve all his problems, but also a cunning man, a man of great emotion. In the Bible, Jacob, Moses, and David are all shown to possess not just strength or the ability to fight manfully, but also use their intelligence, and they either engage in romantic emotions with women or they otherwise demonstrate a certain capacity for delicacy. So here, our present hero, Oedipus, is not just a thug that kills men in a fight on the road, but also someone who can use his wits to overcome a threat, not just to himself, but to the whole community. I will begin a later episode on Athens with the myth of Theseus, and we will see this pattern in his story as well. 
Now, about the Sphinx, this creature has been described differently by different authors, and as always, there are a variety of versions of this tale, even some with different riddles in it. The Sphinx is usually, though, represented as a creature with a woman's head, a lion's body, and the wings of a great bird. All versions end with Oedipus victorious, but in some stories, the Sphinx, so upset at the solving of the riddle, throws herself off a cliff and dies. In other versions, Oedipus actually kills the Sphinx. I am probably not alone in, at least initially, finding the Sphinx to be sort of out of place here. We associate Sphinxes with Egypt, right? But we should also remember the Sphinx gates of the Hittites in Bronze Age Anatolia, and also that Greeks, the Greeks of this time received much culture from both the various peoples of Anatolia and from Egypt, and from the earlier Bronze Age connections with those lands. But anyway, Oedipus comes to Thebes at a troublesome period in its history. Not only has the Sphinx been causing trouble, but recently they also lost their king. The brother of the widowed queen is a man named Creon. He has previously declared that anyone who rid the city of the Sphinx would earn his sister's hand in marriage and the right to rule as king. So, upon arrival, Oedipus is married to the queen, whose name is Jocasta, J-O-C-A-S-T-A in most translations, and becomes king. The royal couple goes on to have children, two sons and two daughters. In In the 5th century BC, long after the events of the myth, the Greek poet Sophocles wrote a trilogy of plays about the downfall of Oedipus. In the first play, Oedipus Rex, or Oedipus the King, the play begins with the city of Thebes suffering from widespread infertility. Not only is the land barren, but the women are barren as well. Creon returns from a mission to the oracle at Delphi with bad news. The land and its people suffer because the murderer of their old king stands among them, among the people, and unpunished for his deed. They must find and exile the killer. Seeking more guidance, Oedipus summons the prophet Tiresias. Now, this touches on another point I made previously in another episode. We would like to place the at least semi-mythical events of this particular story during the Dark Ages of Greece, but here we see Tiresias alive, yet we know that he was dead by the time of the Odyssey several centuries before because Odysseus meets his shade in the land of the dead. I mentioned in the earliest, earlier episodes on Greek myth that there seems to be a jumbled period of time in Greek myth and history in which numerous heroes seem to overlap in ways that are hard to untangle. Odysseus, Heracles, Tiresias, Oedipus, and even Theseus seem to have been contemporaries even while other narratives would suggest that they were quite separate chronologically. Again, this apparent anachronism can really only be noted before we move on. So, in Sophocles' play, uh, blind Tiresias, after arriving, being led by a young boy, Tiresias is reluctant to speak on the matters brought to his attention, that of the identity of the murderer present among them. He wishes to leave, and he says that Oedipus does not really want the truth. It's sort of Tiresias' Jack Nicholson moment. You can't handle the truth. But Oedipus badgers the aged prophet, and finally he lets the cat, or sphinx, out of the bag. Oedipus is the killer. Tiresias is run off angrily, as he prophesied would happen, and Oedipus is very disturbed by the accusation. At this period in the play, Jocasta, his wife and his mother, though Oedipus does not know the latter fact yet, she tells him the story of her firstborn son and of her husband's death. 
When he hears these details for the first time, Oedipus recalls his road rage fight from years before while journeying to Thebes, and he suspects that maybe he is the killer, but he tells no one. Of course, he has not realized the fuller truth of the situation yet. News soon arrives that King Polybus of Corinth, who raised Oedipus, is dead, and Oedipus is invited to the funeral. Now, Oedipus is oddly happy about this news. After all, his supposed father has died, and he has escaped the doom of the prophecy, as it appears, which said that he would kill his own father. But Oedipus refuses to attend the funeral. The messenger adds one fact before finishing his mission. Oedipus was Polybus's adopted son, not his biological child. Now, that is enough story summary. You can probably see the dominoes falling now. His wife and mother, Jocasta, not Oedipus, is the first one to put all the pieces of the riddle together. And when she does, she hangs herself, having realized that she has married her own son and that her children are born from incestuous union. Oedipus realizes the same truth a little later and separately, before finding her corpse swinging from a rope. And then he tears out his own eyes in grief. Now, this is quite a spectacle, one as fascinating as it is gruesome to imagine. The specter of Oedipus returning to the stage at the end of that play, his eyes destroyed and bleeding, and the inescapable doom of the gods hanging darkly over all. I will not describe the whole trilogy of plays to you. I recommend that you read it on your own, but I will note that the third play in the trilogy is named Antigone, after one of Oedipus's daughters. In the play, this daughter, Antigone, she defies the new ruler of the city, who happens to be Jocasta's brother Creon, by attempting to bury her brothers, who had fought a rebellion against their father's usurper, and they had been slain in combat, and Creon has forbidden their bodies to be buried because of the dishonor that they committed during their lives. Now, I mention this play because there are some lines of dialogue from it which will support the existence of certain political views among the Greeks that I will get into in the next section of this episode. But I also bring it up because Antigone is such a strong female character in a culture which I have already stated numerous times with emphasis, a culture which most certainly oppressed women and did not provide them even with the rights that Roman culture would apportion to them. And yet, in ancient Greek culture, we have Athena, and we have Artemis, and we have the rites of Persephone at Eleusis, and Antigone here standing up against a whole city of men. This is one of those many paradoxes that attracts me to Greek history and culture. Like a woman playing hard to get drives you insane with curiosity, so too does Greece intrigue you with the mystery of its contradictions. So in the next section, we'll consider some of the political ideas that flourished among the Greeks, and here too, we will find some stark contradictions. On best of mortals, again uplift our state. Since now this land calls thee Savior, lift up this state in such wise that it fall no more. Thus speaks a priest of Zeus in the opening lines of Oedipus Rex, the first of three plays by the Greek poet Sophocles about this fascinating myth. I chose to bring this myth and this play into the podcast for a couple different reasons. One was a desire to punctuate my ongoing series about ancient Greece 
with some more myths that I did not make room for in the mythology episodes. But I also thought that some of the language used in the play would provide some insight into the political developments of the classical period. Political development. Perhaps that is the first time that those words escape my mouth in this podcast. Which isn't to say that there weren't politics before now, before classical Greece. Obviously, there were political matches, political victories, and political defeats among all human societies, probably even back in the times of the hunter-gatherers. We have already heard about the struggles between the priesthood and the pharaoh of Egypt, about the overthrow of various Mesopotamian rulers by different factions, and we have seen the struggles on the beaches of Troy between the personalities of Achilles and Agamemnon. Now, Achilles and Agamemnon, and Odysseus and Menelaus, and so many other figures in the Iliad and the Odyssey, they are all kings. Oedipus, in the tragic myth placed in Thebes during the Greek Dark Ages, is also a king. Every political situation seems to be a monarchy. In the classical period, though, we see the development of a more diverse political landscape. Plato and Aristotle will write much about the arrangements of these different governments and their qualities and defects. We will get into the details of those writings later, but classical Greeks essentially lived in six different types of political arrangements. First, as described by Aristotle, was the monarchy, the rule of a king over his subject peoples. The king inherited his power through a recognized system that transferred power down through the generations according to established tradition. Tyranny was like monarchy in that it involved the rule of one man, but the tyrant has seized control of the state and is not limited in his power by any tradition. Then there was aristocracy. Similar to monarchy, this was the rule of a class of superiors who inherited power, land, and wealth from their forebears and exercised a recognized power over their subjects. They held that power in common or rotated primacy among their families. Oligarchy is similar but different compared to aristocracy in the same way that tyranny is similar but different when compared to monarchy. Oligarchs are a small number of people who have control over a state, but only through force and not due to any sort of recognized inheritance. It is basically the tyranny of a small group rather than one man. Democracy, the fifth of six forms of government, does not have quite the same meaning for the Greeks as it does for us today. It does not refer simply to the rule of all people or one vote, one person, or anything like that. Aristotle saw it more pointedly as the rule of the poor at the expense of the wealthy rather than in unison with them. Furthermore, he saw in it the overriding of law. Finally, there was a form of government known as polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y, which Aristotle characterized as a compromise between democracy and oligarchy in which the poor masses and the wealthy worked in unison. Aristotle opined that the best rule for a state was a constitutional government, a type of polity, which negotiated outlined rules for the masses and for the wealthy. I will go into the specifics of these governments when we come to Aristotle, but he is a ways off yet. The point here is to prepare you for the theme of politics in the classical age. During the Persian War, the theme of these podcasts will focus on Greek freedom and independence, but that does not necessarily translate to democracy, since many of the Greeks fighting in that war lived under other forms of government. Then, when we come to the Peloponnesian War, the war between the various Greek states, politics will not simply be a theme of the discussion. During the war, politics was a weapon. 
The Athenians used democracy as a weapon. After defeating a city in battle, they would topple its government and replace it with a democracy if it was not already operating under such a system. The Spartans would do the same, replacing existing democracies with oligarchies or tyrannies. Thus, you could help ensure that the citizens of the defeated city would continue to cooperate with your military alliance. Now, I use the word citizens in that last sentence. That's another novelty of this era in ancient Greece. In place of subjects or people, I will often use the word citizens to describe different groups. The term, of course, derives from the word city and now becomes a frequent way of describing someone's origins. People are now often seen as citizens of their respective cities, not as subjects of Agamemnon or the sons of Heracles or a Danaan or an Achaean or a member of another particular tribe. Pericles is from Athens. He's an Athenian rather than the descendant of Achilles or a Thracian or a Heraclid. Those other ways of describing people according to their tribe or their king and so on will continue to be used, but you are going to start to hear much more familiar terminology when describing someone's origins and their politics and their way of life because our own modern democracies are very much founded upon the ideas that are at play in classical Greece, even though there are many stark differences between their political cultures and our own. Now, politics was a weapon, but it was also participation in the divine. I have quoted Creon, the brother-in-law of Oedipus, already at the beginning of this episode. He remarked there that disobedience was the worst of all evils. He meant by this disobedience to the state in whatever it mandated. Now, Creon had become the leader of Thebes in the wake of Oedipus being deposed, and Sophocles, the poet, uses this character to voice several opinions about the value of the state in the Greek mind. Considering the, consider the follow, pa, following passage, also from the third play, Antigone, in which Creon reflects on the burden of power. No man can be fully known in soul and spirit and mind until he has been seen versed in rule and law-giving. For, if any... Being supreme guide of the state, cleaves not to the best counsels, but through some fear keeps his lips locked, I hold him most base. The supreme guide of the state, he says. Elsewhere, he states the following with regard to leadership. Whomsoever the city may appoint, that man must be obeyed, in little things and great, in just things and unjust. Clearly, Creon assigns godlike power to leadership here in these passages. Now, whether Sophocles the poet felt the same way is a subject for another episode, but he is clearly voicing a known opinion in his time about power and about the state. When we come to Pericles, who ruled both through force and through persuasion over Athens during its greatest phase, we will definitely see someone for whom politics is a divine activity, whether he makes references to the gods or no. And finally, and most tragically, when we come to Socrates later in this second unit of episodes, we will see a man completely devoted to wisdom, completely devoted to knowledge. We will see him accept an unjust death penalty laid upon him because, as he says, the state is to be obeyed in all its decisions, even though he is openly critical of his contemporary Athenian government, which is run by men who accuse him, rightly so, of being anti-democratic. Socrates had supported and aided the so-called 30 tyrants who had ruled over Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War. The 30 had been appointed by victorious Sparta, and Socrates had been philosophically a supporter of authoritarian political extremes, such as those practiced by the Spartans. 
Yet Socrates was unwilling to disobey those who had replaced his preferred political party. He considered such disobedience essentially an attempt to destroy and overthrow the state. He willingly drinks the poison and dies on the last page of Plato's dialogue Phaedo in order to demonstrate this importance of obedience to the state. In the previous dialogue, called Crito, C-R-I-T-O, Socrates personifies the state and he speaks in imitation of it with regard to his situation. He says the following, while, while waiting for his death sentence to be carried out and while his friends are trying to convince him to escape justice, pretending to be both the state and his political leaders with regard to this idea of perverting the law and escaping his death sentence, he says the following, What complaint have you to make against us? which justifies you in attempting to destroy us and the state. Did we not bring you into existence? Did we not bring you into existence? Consider the impact of this statement. In our modern Western parlance, people may think either one of two things about their own births, that they were brought into the world by God, or that they were brought into the world through entirely natural circumstances, the results of procreation, evolution, etc., but here, Socrates is so bold as to say that it is the state which brings one into existence. It did so, in at least one respect, by marrying his parents to one another. I do not think that I can add much to that statement in order to impress upon you the significance of politics for the Greeks. Truly, some among them anyway saw in the state a manifestation of God. In later times, we will hear this idea paraphrased by St. Paul among the Christians when he tells them to submit peacefully to state persecution because God himself has put their persecutors in charge for his own mysterious reasons. A new age is dawning in Greece. Much that was glorious is now a distant memory. The halls of Menelaus, which Telemachus errantly described as surely equal in splendor to the halls of Zeus upon Olympus, these halls are no more. Even the greatest kings of whom we will read now, especially the Spartan kings, all live in much more mundane circumstances. But there is another kind of glory to be described here. There is, for one, the fanatical devotion to freedom. Now, the Greek warriors at Troy fought mostly for loot, but the 300 Spartans who fall at the gates of Thermopylae fight for honor and in the common defense of their homeland. The Athenians depart their city and watch from an island offshore as the Persians burn it to the ground. When they return to the mainland, they engage the Persians with vengeful determination. That is one of the things that will make this second unit of episodes so fascinating. We struggle to find things in common with the great figures of mythology and the pseudo-history of the great epics, such as Heracles or Agamemnon. Yes, there are some psychological and spiritual lessons to be learned in those stories. But we can sense the fear of the Athenian warriors when they meet the reputedly invincible Persian army at the Battle of Marathon. We can sympathize with their dismay as they depart their city and watch it burn. We can feel the breath of the doomed Spartan warrior standing behind us in the shield wall at Thermopylae. There will be tragedy also intermixed with glory. The united front that the Greeks form against the Persians will begin to fall apart a generation later, and after another generation, the various city-states will descend 
into a bloody, murderous, prolonged civil war. And yet, amid all this chaos, there appears the philosophy of Socrates that will continue to speak to us long after all these other events have just become paragraphs or footnotes in history textbooks. And when Socrates drinks the poison prescribed in his death sentence, we experience the loss of a friend in a way that no tragedy before now has ever done. This is a truly significant time in the history of the West. Virtually every issue with which we grapple today has its roots in the classical age. Questions of individual freedom, political representation, the nature of knowledge, the value of courage, the meaning of good and evil. All of these matters are consciously considered by the classical Greeks. And there was more than philosophy and politics born out of this era. The first great mathematical text appears around 400 BC. Euclid's Elements, besides being a 13-volume math text completely without error and done entirely without the use of numerals, also contains endless foundations for equations that we still teach to algebra and geometry students thousands of years later. About the same time, Hippocrates writes the earliest documentation of medical science, and students of Aristotle will, will record his lectures on biology and other sciences, whose roots are also found in this era of Greece. But all that in good time. I'll begin the next episode with Sparta, from its uncertain founding in the murky history of the Greek Dark Ages, and then I will track its growth all the way up until the Persian War. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.